Hello everyone and welcome to Heart Yoga Radio. We're having our usual walk through the Welsh hills today, watching the buzzards and the crows and the sheep and all the little birds doing their things, while we'll, we quietly get on with our things, us humans. So we thought we'd take a break today from the the panic and hysteria and darkness of the world and spend this walk with our mate Lao Tzu. Whenever we go to visit him we never quite know what mood he's going to be in. So let's have a read through this chapter and see where he was at on this particular day. It's chapter 66. Why is the sea the king of a hundred tributaries? Because everything comes down to it. So it is kingly by this name. So a sage that wants to rule the people must be below them. If he wants to be their leader, he must be behind them. If he has no desire to control them, the people will not feel oppressed. And if he stands before them, for their own sake and not his, they will not harm him. Trusted by everyone, no one will tire of him. What is his secret? He never competes, so there is no one else but him. So, some some of that seems uh, obvious and some of it less so. Yeah. So what do you think, Dr Yates? Well, it does seem uh, genuinely counterintuitive, probably because in our times, the leader has to be an orator and a tub thumper, preferably. We've seen in recent years the success in gaining power of people like Bolsonaro and Donald Trump and Orban and Boris Johnson. And these people are tub thumpers. They're able to attract and manipulate attention by making quite a lot of noise. I mean, in most of these cases, there's very little substance in what they say. It's opportunistic, it's populist. But of course, they fall from grace fairly easily as well. I mean, the arch example is that of Mussolini. I nearly said Trussolini. Uh, (laughs) Mussolini. (laughs) Benito Mussolini and... uh, Tub thumping got him a long way with with a bit of marching and this, that and the other and he became fascist dictator of Italy starting off in the 20s and uh, but he came to a sticky end in World War Two because yeah. he didn't stand behind the people or below the people he tried very much to stand above them as Il Duce the ruler, ruler you know and of course Hitler picked up the same thing of the supreme leader the Führer their little soundbot, you know, it was one, one people, one empire, one Führer, one leader, one supreme leader. No elections, just supreme leader. And Lao Tzu is speaking out against that as a style of leadership. And again, it's, again, it's counterintuitive for us because leaders have to be seen. And we live in an age of hyper-information. Uh, to the point that there's so many bits and bites and words and sentences wheeling around the the, uh, the public the sphere of public discourse that it's hard to tell what's true and what's false and what's noise and what's got sense in it. 
it's an absolute clamour and of course when Lao Tzu was writing such a thing didn't exist somebody like himself would, might have been hanging around on the edge of an imperial court or maybe a warlord's court as, as a librarian and as an intellectual who might be consulted and uh, as, a, as somebody regarded as sagacious we don't know I mean we, we know that Lao Tzu had a disdain for any of that stuff anyway he wanted to uh, 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 to be to be solitary, and of course, you know, we know the tale of the Lao Tzu, the book, the Tao Te Ching, that it was uh, extracted from Lao Tzu under duress by border guards, who kind of held him until he'd imparted his wisdom and written it down, before they'd allow him to go off into the mountains to engage with the last stage of his life. So it's very, very counterintuitive, this idea of leader being behind and underneath and not superior and just quietly influencing. And it's a hard concept to imagine in, in the 21st century. And anybody who tries it will... Like Jeremy Corbyn. Well, Jeremy Corbyn basically tried something like this, you know, uh, having said that, he, uh, the, the man's influence goes way, way, way beyond the reputation that the mainstream media, uh, who agents of the establishment, attempted to foist onto him. He's still enormously influential in certain circles. And, and uh, I think we'll see, here's a prediction, we'll see over the next 6, 12 months, 18 months, that influence coming to bear, you know. Corbyn doesn't matter whether he doesn't care whether they put his name to it or not. I think he genuinely is, just doesn't doesn't care, you know. He tried something like this, and and, and it's it's a hard one to sell in the twenty first century. But I think there's something quite profound in Lao Tzu's advice that's lurking underneath the idealistic surface. I mean, this is about a utopia. This is how it would be ideally. He's expressing his ideals. And like anybody with any sense, he does have concerns about the negative potential of government. You know, now we live in a time when there's a, a clamour for state action. And, and neoliberals who believe in the small state or the night watchman state, like, like our new Prime Minister, for instance, are kind of fighting a rearguard action, rear action against calls for state intervention. And, and you might well ask yourself the question of how is something like global warming and, the, and environmental degradation going to be dealt with except on an international scale by uh, some agency with a, with a certain governmental power, certain strong state power to, to, to make things happen. But without that, you, you wonder, is, is, is anything going to be done before it's too late? But nevertheless, I would say in, 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 in the face of that, you know, and this is where the weird place that neoliberals meet, meet anarchists and, and Marxists is that, 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 that there is a distrust of the state at the core of all of those philosophies, though based on entirely different analyses. And I think it's right, I think you have to bear in mind, governments do bad things. But I think, I think government is probably one of those things like utopia that, that you can't dispense with. But at the same time, you need to be very cagey about it. 
Now Loucher I think she sees that. It seems to me like he sees the need for the ability of communities, collectivities of people, to have a means of harnessing their, their power and their energy and, and their, 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 their goods, their wealth, their raw materials that they have at their disposal, to produce the things that for, the, for their community that cannot be produced on their own, but by individuals. that require collective action, like a road system, you know, or a, a broadband system. You need some kind of centralised something to do that, you know. Or some... At its best, the state is the ability to, for a community to focus its energy for collective projects that, that are not in the purview, or the, uh, or the ability of single individuals. At the same time, he sees how easily it can go wrong. I mean, how does it go wrong? It goes wrong into despotism. And, and democracy doesn't seem to be a guard against that. You know, the, the, some of our worst kind of right-wing arseholes in the world, they were just very, very destructive people, destructive to their communities and to the world in general. But elected, democracy is now a guard against it. It's, it's fairly easily corrupted and so on. So there is a big question here, you know, and, and I think it is, it's one of, those, one of those tensions, one of those dialectical tensions, which should direct our thought. I mean, it's just, just as a, a simple tip on thinking about stuff, look for the, the contradictions, look for the tensions, look for the place in the story where things don't quite kind of fit together. And th that is where... where you, you, you'll find it very fruitful to start any analysis of anything, almost, you know, any, any historical or political or current affairs problem. Now, Lotso gets all this, and he gets it in this, in this seemingly opaque chapter. And he gets it right down at, at, at its core, and the core is the importance of trust. And even though he doesn't mention this specifically, the importance of promise keeping. You know, how, how, would, how, how can life in a community uh, unfold in a fruitful way so that the community does the things that communities do, which is support everybody through collective action and, and, and shared concern? Except... People keep their promises to each other. Yeah, and, and people know who to trust and who not to trust. That there's a very, very deeply ingrained concept of trust. And of which a community will not thrive unless there's quite a large degree of trust in it. You know, that, that part of its culture is, is the, the valuation of trust, the, the, the holding of trust as a high value. And Lao Tzu saying, well, if, if, if you, do, you, you, do, you do need leaders, you do want a sagacious leader, you have to have somebody you can absolutely trust. And somebody who you know has got, really does genuinely, sincerely have your interest at heart. And you really can see, and you know by the, the example of the person's action, 
that they are trustworthy. They're not just being opportunistic. They're not being nice to your face for their own benefit in the long term. They're not, they're not ingratiating themselves to you. I mean, these seem all kind of obvious things, but you wonder, are they being employed? Are these questions being asked in our political life? And I think, well, not. Because trust has been eroded deliberately. It's what culture wars are. They are the effort, the, the effort, the concerted effort by nefarious holders of power to divide and rule. You know, to get the people not to trust each other because then they won't form a unified body that will put a stop to our fucking antics and our exploitation and our uh, ever greater, greater accrual of wealth and power to ourselves through a trickle-up system. So all this is in there. You know, and, and this notion of trust is, is absolutely right at the centre of this idealistic utopian story that he's telling but the other thing that's at the core of that is the notion of verticality and the notion of horizontality now if you go back over our podcast you'll find at least one podcast when I talk about the vertical axis and in fact it's something that I kind of chewed over uh, for some time and, and it continues to inform form my thinking and basically, uh, it goes like this. Um, thought, including the, the thought that we take to be our common sense in, within a particular society, the common sense that we kind of share amongst ourselves as, you know, as British people or whatever, is structured through metaphors. I mean, here I'm indebted to some writers called uh, Lakoff and Johnson who wrote a book called Metaphors We Live By in which they trace the play of metaphors in, in, in common sense, in, in, in the general world picture that a community might share or more or less share, which then structures its thinking and, and therefore its actions and its policies and its plans for the future. So it's very important to understand what kind of central myths we have, you know, what central metaphors we have. And the metaphor of verticality is one which has dominated certainly, well, the life certainly in very, very many, many parts of the planet. And it's got lots of different articulations. But of course, the articulation that we still live with is, is, is you know, that, uh, uh, that, that society is a pyramid. And that, that, you know, that and the most worthy and the most powerful and the most valuable and therefore the most privileged sit at the top of the pyramid and the pyramid comes to a point which would be the monarch. Of course, we actually still live in a monarchy, you know, but, OK, you have republics like the United States, but it's still got its kind of aristocracy of celebrities. It's still, it's still got its uh, families, which... It's still got its dynastic families like the Bushes and so on, right? So... Pyramidal structures in societies are just pretty well universal. But Lao Tzu is actually like flipping that completely on its head by saying that the leader isn't sitting at the top of an apex of a pyramid. He's below and behind. You know, he's, 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 he's kind of taking issue with the very, very notion of the pyramidal organisation as being the best one for ensuring that a society functions smoothly 
and in the interests of all of its people. And I think it's something that needs taking on board, you know, we really have to get rid of pyramidal thinking, vertical thinking. Now, it's not to say there aren't any hierarchies or differentials in life. There are. And, I'm, and uh, simply, I don't know, the uh, one that I've been thinking about is, is, is education, is in terms of education. You know, there's a differential between the teacher and the students because the teacher knows something and the students ostensibly want to know it. So there has to be a flow from on high, you might say, down you know, between the teacher and the student, because there's a differential, there's a potential difference, like in electricity, therefore there is a flow. It's a flow of power, as it happens, but it's also because the teacher can, uh, in bestowing an appraisal of a student's performance, can determine that person's life. You know, you decide, I'll give this person a first or or an upper second, you know. Whereas having a first might sort of open a glittering future, having an upper second, they'll do okay, but... And somebody decides that somewhere, you know, they try to make an appraisal. So it's a power differential between the teacher and the students. And I don't know how you do away with that, you know, or even why you'd want to, as long as it's done properly. Because we all want to learn, and you learn from, you learn from others, you know. There are people that know more about certain things than you. And then there are verticalities all throughout life, and I think they are a part, part of life. But to, to make that the only thing, because also there's the, there's, a, there's the horizontal structure of worth. But, you know, you say, well, actually, every, every, every person from, the, from you know, the most endowed with gifts by God at birth, you know, or by nature at birth, you know, to, to, to somebody who needs looking after all their life. But... But there is an equality of worth there, you know, that horizont- horizontality. There's a, there's a deservingness of life in every single case. And, uh, and that, should be, that should provide us with the horizontality as well. And I would, I would say that, you know, a, a proper social organisation does have some sort of ver- vertical or differential characters, but it also has some, some characters of equality and evenness and horizontality of a surface, you know. And the metaphor I came up with that best explains it is that there, it says there, are, there are no levels in existence. It isn't consisting of levels. Because remember this vertical axis, axis, as well as it being like the king, the lords... The, the middle class, then the serfs, and then the slaves, right? Vertical. But also it's like God, the angels, the archangels, the, 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 the Pope, the, the priests, the, and then the bottom of the people. It's like metaphysical, it's God. It's also money, you know, the gold standard, gold at the peak, then the currency, then sort of credit notes from the bank. You know, that money has this kind of transcendental signifier at its core. And all of that is based on verticality, and it's all, actually, it's all completely hollow, because you always have to, it's all, it's, it's all, it's, it's always mythical. I mean, you have to invent something like God, you know, some supreme being to get to hold it all together, or something that backs up your money, the gold standard, you know, or something that acts as their final backstop for your country, the monarch. And, of course, this country is still pushing, you know, the, the Conservatives in this country, small c, big c, the establishment in this country pushes that notion. 
the notion of verticality because their privilege depends on them sort of occupying positions on that vertical structure, on that pyramidal structure, fairly high up, not at the bottom. So it needs challenging, you know, but and yet yet there are differentials in, in life and, 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 and need to be as well. As I said, the prime example being education. And I'd, I'd, I'd say the metaphor we need to proceed by isn't necessarily just like a reticular horizontal formation, like a network, you know, and that, that's how we kind of work everything. Even though there isn't enough of that in modern life, nowhere near enough of that. In fact, the, the powers that be who've pushed the vertical metaphor have, have done as much as they can to destroy the natural horizontal, the naturally occurring communism of people, you know. And we'll see more of that in coming weeks as, as, as our, uh, and, uh, our new old government, uh, you know, um, the, Tor the, the Tory party on its fourth prime minister in six years or something, uh, is almost bound to bring in some anti-union stuff. Remember, look, a union, I mean, they elect leaders, so you get a bit of verticality, but they are also horizontal structures. It's all about, about the communication in the workplace, you know as well and they'll be smashing all uh, attempting and the, 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 this new government will be attempting to smash that horizontal structure you know because th th therein lies the solidarity between people and that's the, the level at which trust operates so it seems to me that neither of these metaphors is, is any good just completely on its own it's a completely horizontal society would kind of fall, fall to pieces because you, you'd have a fetish against any kind of differentials and uh, but at the same time, it's this, this this notion of a transcendental signifier of the god or the monarch or the president or whatever you know, or the CEO of the company. That's that, that, that's kind of brought us to this impasse that we're at, you know, which is about to destroy lot like, fucking human civilization, you know. So so what what is what is the metaphor to guide your thought and your analysis? Here? Well, it's like the jam roly poly. You know, so, it's, so this is a picture of existence in which there are there are there are no light, there are no levels, nothing. There are no levels. There's no bottom, middle, and top. There's no no levels. Not a higher level of being. You know, a higher level of worth through an accident of birth, maybe in the case of a monarch. But but we still recognise that there are differentials. And we still recognise that the kind of reticular metaphor, just that, that, that life is just a network, isn't sufficient either, because it ignores differentials, without which, there is, uh, without which there is no flow of information, no flow of energy, no actual power to make things happen. But, you know, using power there in its very minimal form of that which enables work to be done, things to be produced, projects to be realised. Power is at the end of the day, so that's cool. Yeah, we're human beings, we want it, need it, and it's right. So, the jam roly poly, of course, is something that has, has layers but not levels because it's all folded in on itself. And I think that's how we need to understand all this that we have, we have layers but not levels, layers but not levels, you know, and uh. Luke too, I think, would, would get that if, I, if he was here now. He'd say, oh, yeah, man, that's, that's it, you know. 
But what is what this just to come back to the text here? You know, what is being recognised by Lautzer is, is is the inadequate inadequacy of understanding the world, understanding the human world, understanding society, purely in terms of the vertical metaphor, or the pyramidal metaphor, the vertical axis. And he he he, he identifies correctly how trust is made difficult by the dominance of that metaphor on our thought, on our psyches, on our being, and on the way we are with each other in society, on the common sense which we share in society. So there's a lot going on there in that little thing. You know, there's a lot going on there. I mean, he used the metaphor of the sea, doesn't he? It's like the sea, actually, is tremendously powerful. I mean, look at it, we can see the sea from here. The power of the sea. But all the little streams that flow off these hills, they'll flow down into the sea, don't they? Including that big one over there, there's a big estuary there. All that water's come off the hill, it flows into the sea. The sea is, the most, is, the, is much more powerful than they are. But it's underneath them. They all end up there. It's like, it's not like the sea's the origin of it, it's the destination of it. And, and Lao Tzu's again flipping our, our thought there because People, when they think about politics in this very raw way, about how, how are you going to rule a society or organise a society, they think in terms of like an origin, you know, the king is somehow like the father of the nation, right? He's the origin of the nation. God is the origin of the universe. Gold is the origin of money. The way, this, this, the way that life is thought to sort of flow down and existence is thought to flow down from the peak of the pyramid. Whereas... Lao is saying, no, it should flow up. And in fact, it does flow up from, from the destination, not from the, or, not from the imagined origin, but from the obvious destination. So it persuades us to be forward thinking. And I was thinking today how much of, of the kind of common sense thinking in this country is completely backwards looking. Nothing is done without reference to, to some imagined, by now imagined uh, form of glory, you know. And of course, you know, the Trump syndrome was to, was to utilise that kind of nostalgia, you know, in, in the, the American context of make America great again. Like, again, you know. So quite apart from the fact that it was never great, <laughs> um, you know, you can say nostalgia, and of course, that, that goes on steroids in this country because this is a country which is by now thoroughly had its nose rubbed in the fact that it lost its empire. Yeah. And of course, every empire comes to an end. Every single one in world history has come to an end. They last about 100 years, don't they? 150 years. And from having the biggest empire in the world and the world reserve currency and all the power that that entails, pound sterling, to like this... this Brexit. Well, somebody call it like fascist plague island, you know, yeah. this, this kind of cold, damp rock off the coast of Europe. That nobody likes anymore. Well, I mean, they've they, they, they've carried on like strutting around, like <laughs> like the empire's still there. Like it's still there, you I know. I mean, Johnson behaved like you know he was the, he was the head of a mighty empire. The way he beat his chest and and puff it puff himself up. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just a little, it's just a bit of theatre based on nostalgia and by, by, uh, uh, from a completely backward-looking uh, political elite. And Lao Tzu's thing of the sea, which is the origin. 
with the sea, which is the destination of all the streams, turns that on its head, and I know it's metaphor, and I know it's incredibly idealistic, and I know it's incredibly utopian, and incredibly ancient. You know, we live in a situation that nobody back then could could possibly imagine, except in the wildest bloody... Nightmares. Nightmares or dreams. (laughs) Fever dreams. In their wildest fever dreams. So, that's very, very, it's very smart, but it takes a bit of digging to to get at it, you know. I'm not holding my breath for a a late-to-light figure to kind of take the reins of British politics. But I do think uh, Mr Corbyn's uh, quiet influence will, uh, will roll on down, you know. Because there's a lot of people saw it. I mean, he's, he's a bloke absolutely vilified, absolutely vilified, on the basis of lies. You know, even the fucking Secretary of State of the United States waded in, more more or less saying, "If you elect this guy, we, we, you're going to have regime change." <laughs> Courtesy of Uncle Sam, the global hegemon. I mean, he said it. He went public on it. So we've got to stop him. If not now, certainly later we will, you know. And, and then military, top military in the country, cyber rattling. Saying there, there, there could be a military coup if, this, if you elect this bloke. And then all the absolute fucking libelous, disgusting stuff that they some, somehow foremost anti-racist in the country gets branded a fucking anti-Semite. Yeah. Despite that, what happened when the Grenfell Tower went up, up in fucking flames? T- Theresa May went there, who was then the Prime Minister, with a bodyguard, you know. Couldn't show a face, really. Corbyn goes there, and everybody's, everybody's coming up for a hug, you know. Because yeah. he's sincere. He really is. He's real, and, and he can be trusted. So they had to kill him. Because they're, they're, they're absolutely, totally shit-scared that if, they're, um, if, if their vertical axis metaphor loses its grip, that they'll, uh, they'll all fall to the bottom of the pit and be sleeping in a cardboard box. <laughs> <laughs> or at least they'll have to sell off a few of their mansions anyway. Possibly, yeah. So, yeah, I think there was more in that than I kind of thought at first, but... But you know you you have to um, you have to have spent quite a lot of time thinking about what's the best way of organising a society. Because <laughs> whatever we're doing now, it really ain't fucking cutting the mustard, is it? Yeah, I mean, a, a question that question: How do we organise society? Is just a, just as vital now as it as it was then. <clears throat> yeah, of course. Yeah. Especially is the one that we got like is falling apart, mm. and and you can see that it's not going to be kind of rescued. It's it's a case of like rebuild, you know, yeah. and with a new plan. In fact, that's more or less probably you know thirty three minutes. Yeah. And a slight aside before we finish. Just to mention the the Walking Dead, which we've ploughed through, and I'm sure many of you have that uh, well-known TV series, apocalyptic TV series. 
where, in uh, my opinion, the zombies are a metaphor for climate disaster. But in that, they have, as you as you work through the hundred hundreds of hours of long, <laughs> they slowly try and create a a way to organize society don't they mm. they do this over and over again and other groups it's like it's it's quite interesting to watch the group that we're following and other groups and how they've decided to organize their newly formed societies mm. and uh, they, they try all sorts of different methods and some of them get completely trashed and taken over or they organically grow into something else but uh, a lot of what that tv show is all about is um uh, them trying out a new way to live with that group to basically organize a society and and the pros and cons of that organization so mm. if you want to if you want a, a more sensible reason to watch the walking dead apart from the zombie action then you know how, like, watch it for that because it's actually quite interesting <laughs> yeah it's a th- thought experiment yeah dealing with like a whole range of possible social organizations yeah I mean, whether the whether the analysis is correct or not, it's kind of like a little, little, tiny bit of irrelevant, you know. But it does it, make you think, though. It lets your imagination, yeah. uh, guide your imagination in a certain direction in, into the question of what is the best way to organise a society, you know. Because it's, it's, whether we like it or not, it's becoming up for grabs, really. Yeah. So we're making our way down the hill now. It's quite delightful today because there's virtually no wind. This is uh It's your bugbear the wind, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I do love it when there's hardly any wind. It's quiet as well, isn't it? Yeah. Okay folks, so thank you for coming on this walk with us on this lovely peaceful day up in the hills. I hope you're all doing okay and we will speak to you again soon. Oh yes, and please uh, remember, I'm going to put a link in the write-up on. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the write-up to this podcast to buy me a coffee. But if you want to do a one-off tip, uh, it would be very help. That would be very helpful to us, and as, uh, you'll find the link in the write-up on pete8.podbean.com. Over and out. I hope you're having a good apocalypse. <laughs>